Chapter Eleven of Flowing Gold by Rex Beach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It was several moments after they had left the bank before Bob Parker could manage to slip a word in edgewise. So rapid, so eager was Gray's flow of conversation. So genuine was his pleasure at again seeing her. Finally, however, she inquired curiously. What was it you said to Henry Nelson as I came out? No quarter asked? Her escort stared down at her, his brows lifted, his tone betrayed blank astonishment. No quarter asked? Bless me, what are you talking about? Then his face cleared. Now I remember. I said I had found quarters at last. The town is so crowded, you know. I didn't want him to feel bound to put me up. I abhor visiting, don't you? Are you really good friends? I felt very queer the instant after I'd walked in. But I was bursting with good news, and I couldn't see Henry's face until too late. Then it seemed to me. Nelson and I are scarcely good friends. We never were chummy, but we were thrown together in France and saw a lot of each other. At first my respect for him was not great, for he is a difficult person to understand. But as my understanding grew, so did my respect. He is a remarkably capable man and a determined fighter, admirable qualities in a soldier. My call today was in the nature of a ceremonial. Uh-huh. There's a ceremony before every duel, the salute. I thought I could hear the ring of steel. Gray laughed off the suggestion. Merely the jingle of officers' spurs, I assure you. We amateurs cling to the regular army pomp and practice. Frankly, I love it. I admire the military method, a rule for every occasion, a rigid adherence to form, no price too high for a necessary objective. And the army code, ironclad and exacting, honor difficult and disgrace easy. One learns to set great store by both. You've no idea, Miss Good, how precious is the one and how hideous is the other. You mustn't call me Miss Good any longer, the girl told him. My name is Barbara Parker. Oh, I like that. I'm more generally known as Bob. Even better, it sounds tomboyish. It's not. It's Tom Parkinish. Father insisted on calling me that, and it stuck. He's a man's man, and my being a girl was a total surprise to him. It completely upset his plans, so I did my best to remedy the mistake and learn to do and take an interest in the things he was interested in. Those were... Miss Parker looked up from beneath her trim velvet hat, and her blue eyes were defiant. All that people like you disapprove of, all that you probably consider undignified and unladylike, such as riding, roping, shooting. Riding unladylike? It's very smart. And why do you say people like me? There are no people like me. You know what I mean. You're not a Westerner. You are what a cowpuncher would call a swell Easterner. Ignoring Gray's grimace of dislike, she went on, deliberately exaggerating her musical Texas drawl. You are a person of education and culture. You speak languages. You have the broad A. And if you had to go unshaven, it would be a living death. You're rich, too, and probably play the piano. 
People like that don't admire cowgirls. The man laughed heartily. In spite of my broad A and my safety razor, I'm as much of a man's man as your father. Frankly, I don't admire cowgirls, but I do admire you, and everything you say about yourself adds to that admiration. If your father is Tom Parker, well, I congratulate you upon admirable taste in the selection of parents. Do you know him? Barbara eagerly inquired. No, but I know of him, and I know what he stands for. I think we have many things in common, and I venture to say that he's going to like me. Barbara smiled. This vibrant stranger had an air about him and an irresistible magnetism. It was flattering to receive marked attentions from a person of his age and consequence. The girl felt an excess of importance, and the tone of his voice, his every look, assured her that she had indeed challenged his deepest interest. She colored faintly as he ran on. So you're a partner of Henry Nelson's. He doesn't deserve it, and our friendship ceases. I shall now hate him. Yes, henceforth, he and I shall be enemies. I love to be flattered, but please don't become Henry's enemy. The most dreadful things happen to them. He pretends to be a friend, but in reality he is a suitor, a detestable suitor, and the ties of business bind you closer. I see it all. I consider it abominable. Gray's tone was as gay as his demeanor had been thus far. Nevertheless, he was probing deliberately, and the result appeared to verify his earlier suspicions. Calm as he had appeared to be during that interview in the bank, in reality he had been, and still was, in a state of intense nervous excitement. His mind was galloping. The effect of that clash had been to rouse in him a keen exaltation and a sense of resistless power. If Henry Nelson was seriously interested in this girl, he reasoned, here then was another weapon, ready-shaped, a rapier aimed at his enemy's breast, and all he had to do was to grasp it. That promised to be a pleasant undertaking. Nor had he any doubt of success, for Barbara Parker had aroused his liking so promptly that reason and experience told him they must be in close sentimental accord. Even had she proven less responsive, he would still have been confident of himself, for few women remain long indifferent to his zeal. Once he deliberately set about winning them. To build upon that subtle, involuntary attraction, therefore, and to profit by it, appeared advisable, nay, necessary, for henceforth all must be grist that came to his mill. In view of his declaration of war, he could afford to scorn no advantage, however direct or indirect its bearing. "'Tell me about the Briscoes,' Barbara demanded. "'Of course I'm dying to do so, but—' Gray looked at his watch. "'Even the good must lunch. No doubt you abhor the public eating places, but alas—' "'I do.' So does everybody who tries them. But our cook has been speculating in shares, and yesterday she stalked majestically from the kitchen. She was a wretched cook anyhow, and we couldn't afford a better one. We're very poor, Dad and I. We're poor. Not poor any longer, I hope. Oh, that well. 
It is exciting, isn't it? Dad has gone out there to see it. So, yes, I'll lunch with you and be duly grateful. Where shall we go? Barbara's brows drew together in a frown of consideration, and Gray told himself that she was even more charming when serious than when smiling. Wherever we go, we'll be sorry we didn't go somewhere else. We might try the professor's place. He's a Greek scholar, left his university to get rich quick in the oil fields, but failed. He started a sandwich and pie counter, and a good one, and it pays better than a pumper. But we'd have to sit on high stools and be scowled at if we didn't gobble our food and make room for others. Then there's Tomaine Tommy's. Cafes are good and bad by comparison. After you've been here a few days, you'll enjoy Tommy's. Then I vote for his Poison Palace. The very name has a thrill to it. On their way to the restaurant, Gray said, Pa and Ma and Allie Briscoe and the tutoress have gone to the mountains, Ma's beloved mountains, and they appear to be living up to her expectations. The mountains, I mean. The old dear writes me every week, and her letters are wonderful, even outside of the spelling. She hasn't lost a single illusion. She has a soul for adventure, has Ma, and she's hunting for caves now. Keeps her ears open to hear if the ground sounds hollow. Wants to find a mysterious cavern and explore it, with her heart in her mouth. She revels in the clean green foliage and the spring brooks. She says the trees are awfully crowded in places, and there's no dust on them. And Allie has a tutor? The best money could secure. And by the way, you wouldn't have known the girl after you got through with her that day. That was only the beginning, too. She fills the eye now, and she's growing. Growing? Gray chuckled. Not physically, but mentally, psychologically, intellectually. I said she had possibilities. Yes, more than I gave her credit for. But what they are, where they will lead her, I do not know. I'm a foolish person, Miss Parker, for I take an intense interest in the affairs of other people, especially my friends. My favorite dissipation is to share the troubles of those whom I like, and right now I'm quite as worried over Allie as her father is. You see, she is out distance. Her parents are ready. The dream part is wearing off, and her new life is a reality. She is confronted with the grim and appalling necessity of adapting herself to a completely new and bewildering set of conditions. I'm not sure that she will be equal to it. I presume you mean that she is sensitive. Super-sensitive and ambitious. That's the trouble. If she were dull and conceited, she could be both happy and contented. But she's bright, and she lacks egotism. So she'll never be either. Adversity would temper a girl like her. Prosperity may spoil her. There's a boy, too, isn't there? Oh, buddy, he's away at school. He'll make a hand, or, well, if he doesn't, I'll beat the foolishness out of him. I've assumed complete responsibility for Buddy, and he'll be a credit to me. There was a tone in Gray's voice when he spoke of the Briscows that gave Barbara Parker a wholly new insight into his character. It was with a feeling 
that she knew him and liked him better. That she said, You think a lot of those nesters, don't you? More than they believe, and more than I would have thought possible, he readily declared. I'm a lonesome institution. There's nobody dependent upon me. I owe no bills, no gratitude, and I've canceled the obligations that others owe me. You've no idea how unnecessary I am. It gives me a pleasing sense of importance, therefore, to feel that I fill a place in somebody's affairs. Wichita Falls's facilities for public entertainment reflected perhaps as correctly as anything else the general chaos consequent upon its swift expansion into a city. Such hotels, as had been capable of caring for the transient trade of pre-petroleum days, were full and carried waiting lists like exclusive clubs. Rooming houses and private dwellings were crowded. A new and modern fireproof hotel was stretching skeleton fingers of steel skyward. But meanwhile, the task of sheltering, and especially of feeding three times a day, the hungry hordes that bulged the sides of the little city was a difficult one. To rest possession of a cafe table for two at the rush hour was an undertaking almost as hazardous as jumping a mining claim. But Calvin Gray succeeded, and eventually he and Bob found themselves facing each other over a discolored tablecloth, reading a soiled menu card to a perspiring waiter. It was in some ways an ideal retreat for a tete-a-tete. For the bellowed orders, the rattle of crockery, and the voice of hungry fooled battlers, and the clash of their steel made intimate conversation easy. Gray noted with approval the ease with which his dainty companion adapted herself to the surroundings and remarked upon it. After four years in the East, it took me a little while to get used to it, she confessed. The Wichita I left was a quiet town. The one I came home to was a madhouse. At first the excitement frightened me, for I felt as if I were being run over, tossed aside. But now that I've fallen in with a chase, why, well, I think it's splendid. Just what are you doing, and how do you do it? Gray wanted to know. Barbara was glad to tell him about her brief but eventful experience since that morning at the Nelson Bank when she had executed her coup, and she recited the story with enthusiasm. Having no capital to go on, she explained, I merely bought and sold on commission so far but I'm not always going to be a broker. I'm making good, and someday Dad and I will be big operators. I've been able to buy a car, and most of my time I'm out in the field. They tell me I'm as good an oil scout as some of the men working for the big companies. But of course I'm not. I merely have an advantage. Drillers tell me more than they tell a man. Of course, with your father along, you're safe in going anywhere. But to go through the fields alone... Oh, Dad doesn't go. What? Gray looked up incredulously, but Bob nodded her head vigorously. Dad hates automobiles. They frighten him. So I go out alone while he runs the office. Extraordinary. But, my dear girl, it's dangerous. Naturally, I avoid Burke and the Northwest Extension after dark. Even the scouts do that. But it wouldn't pay anybody to hijack me. 
No, I go right in on the derrick floors and hobnob with the drillers, talk about their wives and their families, discuss croup and fishing jobs. Sometimes they let me taste the stand and even show me the logs of their wells. It amused them at first to think of a girl playing the game single-handed. Most men, however, rough, have a sense of chivalry, you know, and are better sports than they realize. Now, well, they're beginning to respect my business ability. They have learned that I keep my mouth closed, and that I'll treat them squarely. Some of them would fight for me. I'll tell you, it's the greatest experience, the most thrilling adventure a girl ever had. You're a brave child, and I admire your courage, Gray declared. But I'm not. I'm afraid of everything that other girls are afraid of. Leaning forward confidentially, the girl continued, I'm a hollow sham, Mr. Gray, but Dad doesn't know it. After I learned how badly he wanted me to be a boy, and how he had set his heart on teaching me the things he thought a son of his should know, I had a secret meeting with myself, and I voted unanimously to fill the specifications if it killed me. So I began a fraudulent life. I'm in earnest. For instance, I abhor guns, but I learned to shoot with either hand until, well, I'm pretty expert. And roping, I can build a loop, jump through it, do straight and fancy catches like a cowboy. I worked at it for months, years, it seemed to me. I knew very well it was a ridiculous waste of time, but I'll never forget how proud Dad was when I learned the butterfly. That was my reward. Horses used to frighten me blue, but I learned to ride well enough. In fact, it has been a keen disappointment to him that I won't enter the Frontier Day contests. He'd like nothing better than to see me win the bucking horse match. Think of it. And I'm so timid, I can't look an oat in the face. Barbara attempted a shy laugh, but there was a quaver to her voice, and when Gray continued to stare at her gravely, sympathetically, her face quickly sobered. Now you understand why my father doesn't think it necessary to go along on my trips through the oil fields. It has never occurred to him that I'm anything but Bob Parker, his boy, mind you. He is lost in admiration of me, and I rule him like a slave. I think he is great, too, and he is. He's the dearest, gentlest, sweetest father in the world, and I wouldn't have him learn the hideous truth about me for anything. For a moment, Barbara's listener studied her thoughtfully. Then he said, I'm immensely flattered that you like me well enough to make me your confessor. Now I'm going to confess to you that I also am an errant coward. Please don't joke. You have become quite a famous character, and if the stories are here are true, the stories one hears are never true. I have my share of physical courage, perhaps. That's a common elementary virtue, like generosity, gratitude, sympathy. The most mediocre people are blessed that way. Oh, generosity and gratitude are divine qualities. Gray shook his head positively. Impulses, heart impulses, not brain impulses. They have nothing to do with character. Now I'm deathly afraid of one thing. What, pray? Ridicule. You see, I'm egotistical and ostentatious. 
Oh, very. Disgustingly vain, in fact. If I were unconscious of it, I'd be unbearable. But it amuses me as much as it amuses others, and that takes the curse off of it. I am delighted at some of my own antics. I love to swagger, and I adore an audience. But to be laughed at by others would kill me. Ridicule, scorn, I'm insensible to anything except those. You're a queer man. Gray's gaze became fixed. There was a peculiar light, almost a glitter, in his eyes. He talked on, as if voicing some engrossing thought. Of course I'm vindictive. That's a part of the swashbuckling character. It goes with the ruffles, the jackboots, and the swagger. It is a luxury of which I am extremely jealous. Bringing his attention back to the girl, he smiled, and his manner changed abruptly. There, I've proven it all by talking about myself when I'm interested only in you. However, it is sometimes easier to sell a thing by frankly decrying it than by covering up its bad points, and I'm trying desperately to make a good impression upon you. Now then, I'm tremendously interested in what you have told me about yourself, and I'm sure you are a better oil man, oil girl, than you have led me to suppose. But these are no times for social pleasantries. We are living in Bedlam. There is nothing in the air but business, oil, profits. You are a businesswoman, and if we are to become as well acquainted as I hope we will, it must be the result of a common business interest. So then, for a bargain, I am going to enter this field in a large way. If you will take me for a client, I will buy and sell through you whenever possible. Perhaps we could even speculate together now and then. I'll guarantee you against loss. What do you say? Why, it's a splendid opportunity for me, and I know of some good things. I'm overflowing with information. In fact, for instance, Barbara hurriedly produced her oil map, and shoving aside the dishes in front of her, she spread it upon the table. There's a wildcat going down out here that looks awfully good. And she indicated a tiny circle marked in the corner of one square. Gray noted that there was a dimple at the base of her finger. The scouts don't think much of it, but I happen to know it's on a structure and has a good showing of oil. The driller is a friend of mine, and he has told me that his casing is set. He'll tip me off when he intends to drill through. And if you like, we'll go out there and see what happens. If it comes in, it will mean a big play on surrounding property. Prices will double, treble. My theory is this. Gray's head was close to the speaker's, but although he pretended to listen to her words and to follow the tracings of her finger with studious consideration, in reality his attention was fixed upon the tantalizing curve of her smooth cheek and throat. In some perplexity of spirit he asked himself why it was that mere proximity to this wholly sensible and matter-of-fact young creature filled him with such a vague yet pleasurable excitement. He realized that he was not easily thrilled. Feminine beauty, feminine charm, was nothing new. Nevertheless, at this moment, he experienced an intense elation, an eagerness of spirit, such as he had not felt since he was in the first resistless vigor of youth. 
and his voice, when he spoke, carried an unconscious quality strange to his ears. It was the more bewildering, because nothing had happened to awaken such feelings. He had met this unworldly, inexperienced prairie girl, but twice, and on her part she had betrayed no particular attraction for him. As a matter of fact, she probably considered him an old man. Young girls were like that. Of course, that was absurd. He was right in his prime. Youth sang through his veins at this moment, and yet she must like him. He must have somehow impressed her. That was fortunate, in view of her relations with Henry Nelson. Luck was coming his way, and she would undoubtedly prove useful. The last thing Calvin Gray contemplated was a sentimental woman complication, but on account of this girl's peculiar knowledge, it seemed to him the part of wisdom to cultivate her and to see as much of her as possible. "'If you will come over to the office, I'll show you how I think that pool lies,' Barbara was saying, and Gray came to with a start. It was mid-afternoon when he left the Parker office, at least he thought it must be mid-afternoon, until he consulted his watch and discovered that, to all intents and purposes, he had completely lost two hours. An amazing loss, truly. There was no lack of youthful vigor in Calvin Gray's movements at any time, but now there was an unusual lightness to his tread, and his lips puckered in a joyous whistle. It had been a great day, a day of the widest extremes, a day of adventure and romance, and that is what every day should be. End of chapter 11